It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. My guest today, Stephen Levy. Welcome, sir. It's my pleasure. You have written a fantastic book. It's 500 pages. It's called Facebook, The Inside Story. So let's get to the story. Would Mark Zuckerberg argue with what you have produced on paper? He would. Uh, he told me directly that he disagreed with some of it. He disputes some of it, but uh, he thought it was fair. Hmm. You begin in August of 2016, the book does anyway, in Lagos, Nigeria. Why was he so keen on visiting Africa? Zuckerberg had never been to the continent, and he wants to learn about things that could help his goal of extending Facebook to everyone in the world. So when he goes to Africa, he doesn't go to remote villages and hold babies. Uh, He goes there and talks to entrepreneurs. Uh, He talks to political leaders to see how he could get Facebook uh, integrated into the country. Um, In this case, he talked about how he can get uh, Facebook or the Internet and then Facebook in the hands of people who live there uh, by sending up a satellite, which would extend Internet uh, to Africans and let them use Facebook for free. It's an enormous market. Yeah. So massive. Well, it's growth. Growth is what drives Facebook, and you know, so it's a very fertile place for him to visit because you know, uh, there's a lot of room to grow. I was in Africa that same year. I was in Uganda, and I will tell you how I came to understand the power of Facebook. I had a driver. His name was Mugi. He was 26 years old, had a fourth-grade education. You know what Mugi had? Because he worked for the United Nations, so we had contact with a lot of Westerners coming into Kampala. He had an iPhone. He took pictures of his country all day long. You know what he did at night? Facebook. He posted his photos to Facebook. There are two things in this world Moogie loves. Guinness beer and Manchester United football team. Mm-hmm. Think about that. All right, so Facebook knows where in the world the market is for all these massive companies for, all over the globe. For many countries, Facebook is synonymous with the Internet. They think that... That what they do on Facebook is all they need on the Internet. So it's not a question of where else to go or the competition. It is Facebook or nothing. Hmm. So you write on page two that he wanted to meet with nerds with dreams. And I didn't realize this, but apparently he has posters that say, be the nerd. Yeah. Does he consider himself one? I think in a way he does. You know, uh, it's interesting. I wrote a book about hackers. That was my first book. Mm-hmm. And not the people who break into computers, but the people who fulfill their dreams on computers, the people who wake up in the morning and, and eat, sleep, and certainly program on computers. And he loves that vision. And if you go to the headquarters of Facebook, all over the walls, there's all these posters. Some say, move fast and break things. Maybe we'll talk about mm-hmm. that. But a lot of them just say, hack, I'm a hacker, or be the nerd, which means you know, uh, be the kind of person who tries to change the world by banging code in, uh, on a keyboard. And, and Stephen, there's a big debate as to whether whether or not Facebook is making our lives better or worse. Where do you think he would come down on that argument? 
Well, he would say better, and he would, like an engineer does, he would say, look, look at all the things that people do at Facebook that aren't harmful, that, that bring them benefits. And it's true. You go on Facebook, it's your birthday. People say, you know, from all phases of your life, right, maybe people you knew in high school uh, as well as people who are close to you say happy birthday. But uh, there's a lot of toxic things that happen. And he, in a way, he still thinks of it like it's a dorm room project where students are using it, where the bad things that happen you know, might cause you discomfort at a party or something like that. And it's been very slow to realize that when things go wrong on Facebook now, people can die. Talk about that toxic nature. What, what does he say about the allegations of interference on behalf of Russia and the election of 2006. What's his position in 2006? Well, at, at, at first, you know, it was sort of a, uh, the stages of grief, right? You know, the denial and, and all the way down to where it is now, acceptance, and Facebook is saying they're sorry. Hmm. How would I even know about a Russian ad that targets me? Well, you wouldn't because it wouldn't look like a Russian ad. It's, it's not in Russian. Facebook maybe should have known because they paid for it in rubles. Now they say uh, if someone tries to buy a political ad in rubles, they might not take, take the rubles. But uh, it would look like so, something that came from anyone else on your network. And it probably would be something that you might want to engage in because it would be targeting you uh, knowing something about you. Mm. Deep in your book, page 466, only because we're on this topic here, you talk about subject matters, categories like Jew haters. Right. I'm just, how did he, that, that was something that popped up? Yeah. Something yeah. they had to manage? What happened there? What happens is that Facebook uses this you know, automated ad system. It scales you know, so, so much. They have 5 million advertisers. So it's not like a person is like in a class, you know, like with taking ads on a classified ads thing, sitting there and writing it down. It's, it's automated, and they have all sorts of categories that come up, popped up by artificial intelligence that determines, you know, who gets to see what ads. So if you make up a category that maybe no one else had used before, uh, Facebook will accept it. And in this case, some journalists that disco- discovered that typing in Jew hater uh, – gives an audience for you to find people uh, who adhere to that category. This is hate speech. Totally, totally. And and it's something that time and again, Facebook rolls out things. They, they think this is great, um, but they don't look around the corner to see how it could be abused. And that's one just one of many, many do, examples. Do you think that they've been able as a company to figure out how to ferret that out yet? Well, now they're saying, gee, we're, now we're, we're, we're going to take this policy of trying to really figure out consequences before we roll things out. But isn't that something that every company should do from day one, especially when they're operating in such scale that Facebook has been doing for years? Why do you think it hasn't happened then? Because Facebook, you know, as I, I talk about in the book, uh, became obsessed with growth. And growth was the number one priority. And uh, it became – their mission as much as their stated mission of connecting the world. They figured connecting the world is our mission. So in order to do that, we've got to grow. So anything we do to grow is then worthwhile. The ultimate ends justifies the means. So if, well, with growth comes revenue, right? Yeah. And how, how much does he care about money? He cares about money to the extent, and again, it's very circular. So we need money so we can grow. So it it is not that he's sitting there counting his pennies. He's not Scrooge McDuck bouncing up and down in in all the cash that that he's gained. And believe me, there's a lot of cash. The guy is worth, you know, 
$40 billion or something. Today. Yeah, today. And, you know, uh, so, uh, but he, that doesn't matter as much to him as having Facebook everywhere, as fulfilling those goals and growing. So if you look at the priorities in the company, it really is you know, uh, where that the, this growth team that he built up uh, got whatever mm-hmm. it wanted to fulfill the growth. And no one really got to tell the growth team, maybe that's something that's on the edge of what's uh, a decent thing to do. What's interesting about that is Jeff Bezos will say a similar thing on Amazon. He'll say scale gives you power. And although it increases your size, it also enables you to be more nimble than you were before in the following respect. If you need to change your course, you've got the capital to do it. Is that how Zuckerberg sees it? I think in somewhat similar, but the, the, the scale just gets the hunger for more. And as they build up more and more and more, uh, you know, obviously uh, you can't grow as fast because you have so many people already on there. Mm-hmm. In the United States, they're somewhat leveled out because you know it's harder and harder to find people who aren't on Facebook or whatever. It's interesting about remember Chris Hughes, you know, he was one of sure, the Sure, he was one of the original founders. He was Mark Zuckerberg's roommate at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And he had the big piece, I think it was in the New York Times several months ago, talked about the downside of Facebook. That's right. And, he, and he, he he delivered an anecdotal story where they were driving home from work one night and he said you, you see what we're doing here and you see the growth that we've achieved and he he gave a moment about where Zuckerberg realized how many people he employed, which told Zuckerberg how responsible he is for more and more people, and that apparently struck a nerve with him. You remember that anecdote? Yeah, yeah. What did that tell you? Well, it tells me that what's in his immediate surroundings has more impact to him than the somewhat nebulous thought of billions and billions of people on Facebook. And this was a small team with unbelievable reach. And it's easy to forget what the impact or not understand the impact of what you're doing when it's in a distant country where no one in your company can speak the language. Now, these are smart people. They should be figure out that, uh, that to extend ourselves this far uh, is risky. So and specifically, let's look at like Myanmar, right? The country used to call Burma. They were very eager to get out there like every other country, and they had a plan to grow, which was uh, we don't have to take the time to translate things ourselves. We're not going to hire translators to uh, do a version of Facebook that works in Myanmar. We'll put it out there, and some native speakers will translate it themselves, and they'll improve it, and it'll be usable before anyone at Facebook can speak the language and see what's on there and worry about whether this content is going to cause problems, whether that, you know, uh, extending uh, a genocide on Facebook uh, could possibly happen. Mm. And when it happened, people alerted them to it, but they were slow to act. And, you know, some things that happened that caused violence in 2012, Facebook was slow to act. And it wasn't really until 2015 that they bothered to translate their rule book of what content is appropriate on Facebook, what content they'll take down. Not till 2015 did they change, you know, they translate that rule book into Burmese. Well, very interesting answer. And on the heels of that answer, I'll just go back to page 466. You write parenthetically, it is exceedingly odd that a company headed by Jewish executives frequently found itself in situations that involved alleged anti-Semitism. Right. You mentioned one of them, and the, the Jew hater. How did the company react to that? Uh, to that statement, yeah. 
Well, they, they haven't gone line by line on me yet. Uh, but maybe it's easier then to explain how, how they responded to it as, as a company. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as, as a company, well, they, they invoked their heritage. They said, obviously, we don't want to do this. But it's just one of many, many unintended consequences that, that, that came up. You know, and right now, um, in the last three years, they've been pummeled from all sides and with good reason. Page seven. I know I'm jumping around, but I, yeah, I told okay. you I would do that. Page seven, you say, quote, this is Zuckerberg now. There's this fundamental thing. At an early age, you looked at something and felt like this can be better. I can break down this system and make it better. Yeah, that's the mindset of Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, I felt it was important to look at him. He's inseparable from Facebook itself. He's, he's the founder He's still the CEO with total control. He has more than half the voting shares. So anything he wants to do at Facebook gets done. So I, I thought it was important to look into his past. I go into his childhood. I talk to his parents to learn what he was like as a kid. There's one really interesting story that his mother told me that he went to school in uh, Westchester County outside of New York, a bedroom community of New York City. And he was going to the public school, felt they didn't have enough computer courses, wanted to go to a private school. And there was one down the road, a really good school called Horace Mann. His mother really wanted him to go because his older sister was going away to college that year. She didn't want to lose two kids the same year. He had heard that uh, a fancy school called Exeter, Phillips Exeter in New Hampshire, had a good computer uh, center that he wanted to visit, and and he wanted to go to school there. So the mother said, listen, I don't want you to go away. Uh, Can you at least talk to the people at Horace Mann, go to the interview, get a good look at it? And he said, well, I will. I'll, I'll go and do the interview, but I'm going to Exeter. And he went to Exeter. And I thought of that time and again. When I saw numerous cases, I dug into you know, how each decision was made at Facebook, and there was numerous cases where people around him said, Mark, maybe this isn't a great idea to do this. Maybe this isn't a good idea to automatically put people in a program that uh, when they buy something on the web, it'll be reported to the people who look at their news feeds and, and see that, oh, so-and-so bought a diamond ring on this jewelry site. Uh, you know, uh, maybe we should ask them first whether they want to be in this program. And Mark would say, no, let's, let's roll it out first and we'll fix it later if there's a problem. Um, and I just thought in times like that, Exeter. How come? Because he makes his decisions, you know, uh, solely by what he's dug in and feels is, is best. He's, um, and early on, there, early, an- on, early on in Facebook's history, there was a, a, pro, a product, the newsfeed, the thing which stares us in the face each time all of us get on uh, Facebook. When that it was announced, people uh, went crazy. It was sprung on people. Um, and the difference between the way Facebook was with newsfeed and previously was previously people just put up their information on their profile. You had to look for it. With a newsfeed, it was shoved in your face. So if you, if, if you broke up with someone, uh, it would be broadcast to all your friends. And people felt that was a privacy violation and they objected to the product being role- forced on them. They didn't get a choice. And Zuckerberg said, no, 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 no. They're going to like it. I'm not going to taking it down. I might write these little tools, privacy tools that some people might use to limit uh, what they share uh, or who sees it. But I'm going to stick to that. 
And it worked out for him. People loved the product, and that was the lesson he took, that you know, people complain it could always be fixed. Uh, maybe they'll like it later on. And uh, it, to a certain extent, that worked for a number of years, but now it doesn't work anymore. Well, the, what you're telling us is he said, let's, let's, let's do it, let's, and let's see what sort of reaction we get. And if the pushback is strong enough, maybe we adjust the way we're doing this. But right. if it's not, we'll continue to do it. That's essentially what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And but it it got to be where, you know, more and more these decisions, you know, push the boundaries of privacy. Like one of them in twenty ten, for instance, uh Facebook had this platform that allowed outside software developers, people writing programs, to build it on top of Facebook, the way they do now with uh your mobile phone. You download an app. There were apps that lived on Facebook. And he had to give these developers, people who didn't work for Facebook, information about the people who signed up for those apps and a little information about people who were in their social network, um, other people. So in 2010, he extended this. So if someone signed up for an app that ran on Facebook, that outside developer would not only get their private information, the information they have on Facebook, but the information of everyone in their social network, all their friends. Now, each person on Facebook has an average of 130 friends. So it's possible that you would sign up not too many people for your application, and you don't belong to Facebook or anything, and you get that information, but also the information of all their friends. And that's how a, a researcher at Cambridge University, a couple of years later, did a survey. That he paid 200,000 people a few pennies to take the survey, and he wound up getting the information of 87 million Facebook users, 87 million profiles, almost none of which had the permission of the people whose profiles they were. That's some moral hazards there, aren't there, Stephen? I guess so. Why don't we pause right there? More Hammer Time after this. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. You write on page 14, uh, the news stunned you. A billion people had logged onto Facebook in one day. Quote, it stopped me cold. A sizable chunk of the world's population had been active on Mark Zuckerberg's network. And that's where we are today. It's a company that's, what, 15 years old? Right. You've interviewed him. Yeah, they just turned 16, actually. 16. What was the date on that? Uh, February 4th, I think, 2004. You interviewed him nine times, I believe? Nine times in this book. I interviewed him a whole bunch of times earlier, too. And the first time you met him, I think it was 2006, right? So that's 14 years ago. You reflect on that now. And what you write about at times is when you made the introduction... There were several pauses. Oh, yeah, yeah. What well, explains I, that? Well, I, I had heard about Facebook, the, the, the spectacular success in colleges at the time. I was working for Newsweek magazine then, writing a story about you know, uh, the social apps on, you know, on, on the web. I was before the mobile explosion and thought I'd just meet this guy Zuckerberg, maybe get a quote for the story. So we were both going to be at the same technology conference, and I suggested we have lunch together, and we did that. And I asked him some softball questions about Facebook, like how many people are on it and how many people in your company. And he didn't say anything. He just stared at me. I thought, this is unusual. Did I offend him? Is he going through some sort of episode? What's going on here? And eventually he answered a, a couple questions, but it was really unnerving to have him not say anything to me. I thought, this is a, this is a very odd guy. Uh, uh, later, he got to be better at interviewing, thank God. But uh, what I learned while doing the book, though, when I really dug into the early days of Facebook, was that the same guy who seemed he couldn't get a sentence out was 
brilliantly outlining a plan essentially to take over the world with, with Facebook. At the time, remember, it's only college students, but in 2006, he was redesigning Facebook so it would go to everyone. He was designing the news feed, and he was writing out his vision where everyone in the world would have Facebook. And I found this out by getting hold of the secret notebook that he kept at the time, um, which uh, he destroyed a few years later. But I managed to get hold of some copied pages uh, that existed, which laid out this vision and actually gave me a window into his psyche. Hmm. So you're a reporter, right? And a writer? You consider yourself a journalist? I do. I do. I hope you do, too. Yeah, Indeed. (laughs) Do you think that on the level of journalism that Facebook has killed it at the local level? Um, What do you mean killed uh, – it's been con- contributing to that. I, I wouldn't say that you know uh, journalism was in good shape without Facebook. Uh, the loss of uh, classified ads and other things, you know, amounted to a perfect storm of which Facebook is, you know, a particularly dangerous. But, cold but front. we can we can agree that technology itself has yeah changed the totally, world of media. Totally, yeah, oh, totally. And and Facebook has not helped. And, you know, basically, uh, when you get your news on Facebook, the you know, the journalistic institution is in collecting from it and the places which spend a lot of money and effort into reporting things and trying to get get it right uh, are usually overwhelmed by stories, uh, sometimes from publications that don't exist with stories that didn't happen. Yeah, I just think I'm, I'm from Ohio, Cincinnati, and every time I go home, I just I think there's less and less reporting on the local level than there was before. And it's you know, the landscape yeah, I'm from is Philadelphia. Same thing. So you see it, too, right? Yeah. I'm not necessarily sure that that's a great thing. That's a terrible thing, I think. You know, I, I don't know about you. When I was a kid, we got two newspapers, one yeah. in the morning, one in the afternoon, and, you know, people devoured them yeah. page by page. Mm-hmm. Um, now you, you're on the subway and the people used to hold newspapers just staring to their phones. Mm-hmm. What did the like button do for them? I, I think you wrote it was the gateway drug for data gathering. That's right. What is that? It's interesting. The, the like button, and everyone sees it, it's a little thumbs up thing that you, you click. Uh, it started out as a way to just say, um, hey, this uh, post I saw on my newsfeed, uh, you know, I, I like it, you know, and it's a little signal saying I saw it, I, I liked it. And you know, Facebook took a while to roll it out because they were worried that if they had this um, easy way to respond to a, uh, a post, people wouldn't comment on it and they wouldn't spend as much time on Facebook. But then they realized that they extended that like button out to the web. So millions and millions of websites now have that little thumbs up on their site, then that would give Facebook a little piece of information. It would almost, you know, uh, keep Facebook surveillance on you wherever you went on the web and give you valuable information about, you know, your interests and what, you know, and what you were thinking of buying even. So it, it, Facebook really shifted its ad philosophy to one that's very heavily based on data from then on. And that like button is so powerful. At one point, I talked to a researcher who did a study. This guy wasn't working in Facebook's research team. Um, and he found that with 15 likes, Facebook knew it was enough about you as someone you were acquainted with. Mm. And then 30 likes, someone who maybe you were more friendly with, 100 likes, a family member. And with 300 likes, and we all press this button a lot of times, Facebook knows you better than your spouse does. Come on. That's what, he, that's what he found. Yeah, the like button, though, has changed lives. There's 12-year-olds who are freaking out about how many likes they get when they post something on Instagram, yeah. which is owned by Facebook. That's another uh, uh, you know, effect of it, that if you're able to see that, people will 
you know, go out of their way Clearly. to get content, which makes people, you know, to click, click, yeah. click, 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 click that, that like mm-hmm. button. And it really becomes a race for attention, which, yeah, but, uh, you know, degrades the experience for everybody. Agreed on that. Uh, but it's not going to change. In fact, they'll probably just well, figure actually, out. Well, actually, Instagram now is saying we're going to suppress the like button as people see it. But, of course, Instagram and Facebook still get to see the likes. So they can still target based on those looks. Very interesting. That's a good data point. Very. Yeah. I just got a few more here. Um, WhatsApp, Instagram, Snapchat, which is outside the ownership right. of Facebook. Where's this going? Well, uh, in the about 10 years ago, uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, had a near-death experience for Facebook when mobile came along. Uh, Facebook was slow. And he realized that, you know, uh, Facebook had to stay competitive. So he built up his mobile and then he started buying companies that he felt would be a threat to him. Uh, Instagram is the great example. Uh, It was a how much how much did they pay? A billion dollars. Just a billion. Just a billion. It seems cheap now. That's right. You know, I found it ironic because I talked in 2006, that fateful year for Facebook, um, Yahoo tried to, tried to buy Facebook. And they offered Mark Zuckerberg a billion dollars. And he resisted. He really felt that Facebook's future was such that it was going to be worth way more. But his investors disagreed with him. His executives disagreed with him. And he had to fight them to withstand that okay, wh- offer. What does he do with Instagram then? What, he, what he does exactly what Yahoo tried to do but couldn't do. He overwhelms the founders. And he developed a playbook that he was able to convince them to sell to him. It involved his personal involvement. It involved a big, a huge amount of money. At the time, Instagram was trying to fund around that valued it at half that. And then also he promised them independence. He did the same thing for WhatsApp two years later um, in, and offered them $20 billion. They couldn't possibly turn it down. It was the classic yeah. offer they couldn't refuse. And now these things you know, are, are worth more, and they're part of this plan of, of Facebook to really dominate the whole social world of everyone. Yeah. The last chapter in your book is called The Next Facebook. But before you answer that, I'm very keen on trying to understand where each entity in technology is going. So let's start with Let's start with Instagram. Okay. What's the next chapter for Instagram, do you believe? Well, the next chapter is getting more tightly wound into Facebook. So people like Instagram, a lot of people like Instagram a lot more than they like Facebook. They Facebook is associated with all the problems we've had with it, the privacy violations, and somehow people skate past the fact that Instagram is owned by Facebook. Um, so Facebook wants to you know, get the use of that, you know, so people will still use Instagram, but under the hood, it's all one mm-hmm. product. All the data that you, the Facebook knows about you from Instagram, from WhatsApp, from Blue, its main app, uh, all gets consolidated together so Facebook can more actively show you the ads and Facebook can fuel its growth. And huge growth, too, for Instagram. The other one is WhatsApp. And right. Huge and the, international exactly, growth. Well, exactly. Where's that going? Because what he will say consistently is that we derive no revenue yet from WhatsApp. Well, that means that it's, you know... Uh, huge opportunity for growth. So the idea that Instagram, you know, is now beginning to fulfill its potential for revenue and WhatsApp is only beginning to do that show, you know, is a, is a great way for Facebook to grow because, you know, they're squeezing as much as possible out of the traditional app. So here's a way that they can just keep going and their stock price can keep going up and they can keep getting money to, to knock off that remaining few billion of people who aren't on any Facebook properties yet. Hmm. 
Eventually, do they run ads on WhatsApp? I guess they could. Well, yeah, the, the ads and also other kind of commerce. They want to use it as a way where people buy things. And that's why, in part, I think they were so aggressive in the last couple of years to come up with this cryptocurrency plan called Libra. So they wanted to, you know, basically to create their own currency so people around the world, as you pointed out, WhatsApp is an international app, can buy things without worrying about, you know, uh, currency fluctuations, translating from one you know, uh, currency to another. Um, so Facebook would basically have its own money system. But they've turned tail on that decision. They had the to back down because basically people don't trust Facebook anymore. And uh, if you don't trust the company, why would you trust them mm. with your money? Snapchat. Snapchat resisted the Zuckerberg playbook. It was really interesting. And I found that you know, uh, fascinating because uh, Evan Spiegel, the CEO of Snapchat, uh, you know, withstood that Zuckerberg blitz in part because this is like a weird thing about the internet. It, he's only a few years older than Zuckerberg, but he felt that he was of a different generation and Zuckerberg was of uncool, you know, like he was like old and like it didn't get it. So, you know, uh, Spiegel felt that I don't, I don't have to learn anything about what's cool from them. And I'm not going to be in the position of teaching Mark Zuckerberg what's cool. So I'm going to stay on my own. And um, he had a strong enough foundation in his company. He was able to say no. My sense is anytime I'm around my nieces and nephews, they're getting constant notifications from Snapchat. So I, I think the business is lively and viable. Am I wrong? Well, there's still new, new things. Now, TikTok is what people are talking about. The company owned by a Chinese company, right? And that's that's something that, you know, the younger siblings of your nieces and nephews are already using. They're dancing into their cameras uh, yeah, for 15 seconds. I think, you know, wherever the adults are, kids don't want to be there. So they have to stay one step ahead of the adults. Yeah. That, and Which Snapchat still is, I believe. Yeah, you know, Snapchat still is. But TikTok now is a threat to Snapchat. And uh, and. Because now people are looking at Facebook saying, well, you have too many properties. This might be an antitrust violation. We might think about splitting up Facebook. Um, I don't think they're going to split up Facebook, but they're definitely going to prevent Facebook from making big purchases like a WhatsApp or an Instagram. So I think at one point Facebook would have tried to buy TikTok. That's not going to happen. Wow. So then answer your question in the last chapter called the next Facebook. What is it? The next Facebook is... Uh, we've been talking about it, tying together all those properties. So it's one Facebook, and Facebook will say, hey, you can't break us up because we're just one company. You know, so pulling out uh, Instagram from Facebook would be like, you know, like pulling out someone's lungs, right? You can't do it mm. without killing the whole body. Your book opens up in memory of Lester Levy, 1920 to 2017. Sorry you didn't see that Super Bowl, Dad. I'm from Philadelphia. He was I, an Eagles fan, huh? He was a total Eagles fan. And, oh. you know, uh, that season had started and my dad passed, unfortunately. Wow. He was 96, lived a great life, World War II That's veteran. amazing. And, the, but, the, but, the Eagles uh, won in Minneapolis that year. They won, you know, and actually, this is a, it's, this is a, a strange story, but uh, the week uh, he died, that the Eagles played the Giants. And they, they didn't, people don't remember, they didn't start their season great that year. And it was unclear whether they were going to have a great season. And they were behind, and they just got close enough, like maybe to midfield or something like that in the last play. And this rookie field goal kicker came up, uh, and you know they needed like one point, three points. They needed the whole field goal to win. And he just kicked the ball, and it just barely went over the goalposts. And I felt my dad, he gave that a little push. Mm, nice.
in memory of Lester Levy. Stephen, terrific work. Great meeting you. And Thank congratulations you, on the book. It's Thank called you. Facebook, The Inside Story. He is Stephen Levy, and check it out. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Pleasure. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.